This morning we're going to focus our attention on part three of the study about this age and the age to come. Hopefully you all have the the, uh, handout that uh, went along with that. And as you recall, this is really all generated by the fact that I was teaching through 1 Timothy and I came to 1 Timothy 4.1 and saw that phrase, the latter times, and uh, wanted to explain it. And uh, that sent me on one of my patented pastoral rabbit trail hunts through the Bible, basically. But, but uh, got me in deeper and deeper into this subject. And uh, in our study thus far, we've seen that we're in the last days of this age, awaiting the age to come. That that's the way in the New Testament God's eschatological plan is laid out for us in that way. We saw that the kingdom uh, has come now during the last days of this age um, as a spiritual kingdom and then will come in its fullness in the future that awaits the age to come. We've also seen that the end of this age will come on the last day, which is also known as the day of the Lord, and that's when our Lord Jesus returns and the resurrection occurs. So that's, that's a summary of all we've studied in parts one and two of this study. And so now coming to part three, uh, I'm going to talk about whether or not we may know when this age began. We know when it's going to end. Can we know anything about when it began? Um, uh, Or can we know whether or not there are more ages than just the two that we've been talking about, this age and the age to come? So that's going to be the focus today. And so today's teaching is going to be a little bit different. It's going to do something I do precious little of, and that's it's going to involve some speculation. And, and I'm going to end up by telling you to make sure that you take it only as that. But along the way, there'll be a lot of stuff that isn't speculation that the Bible clearly teaches and says. Uh, the speculative part is in endeavoring to guess about how it might fit together, Right? Um, we know clearly how it fits together in one respect, but the Bible never calls any of these previous times ages. Not at least specifically, although we'll see that it alludes to the fact that there may be more than one that's already occurred. In fact, that there has been more than one that's already occurred. So that's kind of the direction we're heading today. And there's going to be a lesson even in that, I hope, before we're, before we're done. So... <clears throat> That's the agenda, and we can't start without praying. Uh, As always, I feel a desperate need for prayer, at least for myself. Uh, Holy Father, I do thank you so much for the wonderful uh, time we had in Sunday school looking at, at the creation account and contemplating the grandeur of your majesty, your power, your glory, and your wonderful works of creation. And I thank you for the time that we've had to praise you already this morning. And now as we come and look into your word, we're going to look at many passages. And we ask that as we do this, you'll give us wisdom and that you'll speak to us the things you want us to to hear and know today, that things you want to drive home to our hearts, either to convict us or to encourage us. Uh, You know what we need. And uh, we're... We're confident that through your scripture, you will speak to our needs in one way or another. And so we ask that you will do that for us and that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit to that end. We ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as we consider the first issue uh, before us this morning, that is whether or not we can know when this age that we're in began, I want to start by reiterating something I alluded to before, and that is saying that I know of no particular passage that clearly indicates when this age began, either explicitly or by way of good and necessary inference. Um, So anything we could say, it must be based upon Scripture, uh, but scriptural conjecture, and that's the point, Anything we, anything we can say about when this age may have begun has to be conjecture. 
But, uh, but I would put to you that conjecture is not altogether problematic so long as we're searching for an answer in Scripture and so long as we're basing the conjecture on Scripture and so long as we carefully distinguish between what the Scripture teaches and our own conjectures based upon it. We should never put a thus saith the Lord on our conjecture, for example. And we certainly should never elevate something that is conjectured to the level of a doctrine that must be believed by anyone, right? Uh, a conjecture isn't even a secondary or tertiary, right, uh, doctrinal issue. It doesn't even make that list, right, at all. Uh, it's, it's, the thing we, it's the kind of thing we, we do in Sunday school class when we're seeking answers and then we come to a point where we have to say, I guess after all this conjecture, there isn't one. And so sometimes the process of scriptural conjecture like that can be a learning process. It's how we find out sometimes that we've come to the end of what we can know about something. And that's kind of the lesson, a lesson, I want us to get out of this today. Um, as I searched through the scriptures and tried to think about what could possibly be these various ages, I considered a number of things, not just the ones I'm going to uh, share with you this morning, uh, but uh, I'm going to give you two examples of something that might be put forward. Um, I'd like to remind you before we get into that again, uh, that as we saw in our previous study, according to the author of Hebrews in chapter 6, uh, we are already experiencing the powers of the age to come in the last days of this age. Uh, and that the last days of this age were ushered in by the first coming of our Lord Jesus. And so we're in the, the messianic age, although the fullness of that awaits the future. Um, it's already present now. Um, as a spiritual kingdom, as I said earlier. And this has to shake, shape our thinking about when this age began and because this age, whatever else it is, is an age of messianic promises. So if we're going to look for a beginning of this age and Jesus has ushered in the last days of this age and given us a foretaste of the age to come, and that age to come is going to come about at Jesus' second coming. What we know is that this age is an age of prophetic messianic promises um, that have already begun to be fulfilled in part in, in the last days of this age. And that the age to come is entirely an age of fulfillment, right? But also we know that the age to come, that there's a pivotal uh, event in redemptive, hist in redemptive history that marks it off as the next age, right? That kicks it off, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection. And even the last days of this age were marked by a pivotal event in the history of redemption, the coming of our Lord Jesus, his first coming. And so if, as, if we're going to go looking for what could be a possible candidate for the beginning of this age, it seems to me that what we're going to be looking for is some kind of important promise associated with some kind of pivotal event in redemptive history. But that's a safe bet, right? If you were going to conjecture about it. That at least seems to be biblical parameters within which to do it, given what we do know about this age and the age to come. It's still going to be conjecture, though, without any clear teaching from the Bible. But having said that, let's, let's attempt to consider a couple of possibilities of following, paying close attention to this promise fulfillment paradigm and also this notion that it should be a key event of some kind, that God himself should indicate to us that it is a key event in, in the history of redemption. So with these caveats in mind, I want to suggest just a couple of possibilities for when this current age might have begun, might have begun. First, I suppose one could see the current age as having begun with Abraham, 
especially since our Lord Jesus came in fulfillment to God's promise to Abraham. And he's clearly a key figure, as we're going to see, in redemptive history. And the promises made to him are key promises in redemptive history. So, for example, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we read these words. Now the Lord said to Abram, which is what he was known as before. God changed his name, remember, to Abraham. Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So all the different kinds of peoples in the earth. He says, shall be blessed. Now you can see some hints of this already happening um, before Christ came. There were Gentiles who became believers, right? Uh, before Christ came. Um, and there are a number of them. One of the most important would be St. Ruth, right? Who is in the lineage of our Lord Jesus. But the Apostle Paul refers to this passage in his epistle to the Galatians as a key text for Christians. And, and he says this in Galatians 3, verses 5 through 9, and, and uh, if you want to just listen, that's fine, or if you want to turn there, I'm going to be going through these pretty quickly. Hopefully you have them in your notes there. Hopefully I haven't left any out. In Galatians 3, verses 5 through 9, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's citing Genesis 15, 6. Therefore, know that only those who are faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. And that comes from Genesis 12.3 that we just read. And it's repeated later in like Genesis 18.8. So then, those who have faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Paul's point in saying this is that Everyone who believes and is justified by faith, as Abraham was justified by faith, are the true sons of Abraham, are the true children of Abraham. In fulfillment of the promise that was made in Genesis 12. So this is obviously a key event. Right? This calling out of Abraham, this promise made to him, and its fulfillment in the church. And given that we are sons of Abraham by faith, in that fulfillment of the promise made to him, it may be that this age that we're in began with that promise. It's possible. I'm not going to go to the stake over it, obviously, because it's just conjecture. But it's as likely a possibility as any other, probably. But later, the author of Hebrews even speaks of Abraham as an example to us of waiting for a heavenly country and a heavenly city. He says something very interesting. You know, when you look back into, into the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, have you ever wondered why they never built a town? Or even a house? They always lived in tents. Why did they do that? Well, they were just nomadic. They just liked that lifestyle. They loved to live free or something, people might say, right? Uh, no. We're told why they lived in tents by the author of Hebrews. He says this, beginning in Hebrews 11. 8 through 16. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. He's talking there about the land of Israel, the land of Canaan. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. So it was given to him as an inheritance, but he chose to live in the land that was given to him as an inheritance like he was a foreigner. Dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of the same promise, who, by the way, lived the same way. Why? Why did he choose to live in a land that God gave him like he was a foreigner living in a tent and never building a house? Why did he do that? He says in verse 10, For 
He waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Somehow, Abraham knew that the ultimate promise wasn't that land, it was something it pointed to. Now, we don't know how he knew that. Maybe the author of Hebrews doesn't know how he knew that. He just knows that he knew that, right? Maybe that's all that God revealed to him. But we have it here in Scripture. Then we're told by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Remember, the promise isn't really the land, ultimately. It's what it points to. This city, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They died not having received that promise. They all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Now he's alluding to passages in the Old Testament in which believers describe themselves as pilgrims on the earth, or as they, they lived as pilgrims on the earth, as their father Abraham had done. But they certainly viewed themselves that way, as Abraham had done. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland, and truly if they had, had called to mind, or called to mind rather, that country from which they come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. There's a heavenly country and a heavenly city that was the ultimate object of Abraham's hopes. And, it, and he, who is our father in a sense, we're all children of Abraham by faith, we live really the same way he did. In the sense that we live looking for and waiting for the same hope, the same heavenly country, the same heavenly city. So Abraham is a paradigm for us of justification by faith, of salvation by grace through faith alone, and also of this kind of waiting for this heavenly country and this heavenly city that we're waiting for now. And we, we have an even greater taste foretaste of now than he had, right? Especially living in the last days of this age when Christ has come. But we're still waiting for the same thing he was waiting for. So maybe that was the beginning of this age. And the age to come will be when those new heavens and new earth occur. And like Abraham, we're waiting for that only with a lot more knowledge and a much greater foretaste of what's to come. Having tasted of the powers of the age to come as we have in the last days of this age. This city that God prepared for them, again, is the same city prepared for us. And later in Genesis, it's, or Genesis, excuse me, Hebrews, it's identified as the heavenly Jerusalem. And, and we're told that we've actually come to it already, in a sense. Even though we know it's not yet here. Here's what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, beginning of verse 22 through 24. In contrast to those who come to Mount Sinai, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Remember, Paul told the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. Well, this is the city that we're citizens of. We're, we're citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. We're citizens of the heavenly land. It's the heavenly country already, even though it hasn't come yet. So we've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, 
and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Remember, uh, the blood of Abel cried out for vengeance from the earth, God told Cain. Jesus' blood cries out for mercy for us. That's why it speaks better things than the blood of Abel. So whenever we gather for worship, for example, we're essentially joining in with those who've gone before us. Those spirits of just men made perfect who are already in some way experiencing something of the heavenly Jerusalem, uh, apparently, given this text. We're just joining in with what's going on there when we come to worship. We, along with them, have already begun to experience now what we will experience fully only in the future new heavens and the new earth, about which we'll read next. But I would just like to point out to you, this is a, a church history fact that's gone, that gotten lost by many people who, who are of these traditions. You know, uh, in, in the old Orthodox churches, they, they like to have pictures of saints all around the walls in their churches. Do you know why they do that? to remind themselves that when they come to worship, they're joining in with those who've gone before in the heavenly Jerusalem. Sadly, those icons have become virtual objects of worship now, and they pray to saints and all that. We know that's all wrong. But the notion that, that we need a reminder, that we ought to be reminded of this important truth isn't such a bad thing. There's just a better way to go about it, and I would argue it's to read and contemplate this passage. Uh, is the better way to go about it because that's what God gave us. He didn't give us a, pic a picture book, right? He apparently didn't think we needed one. But the new heavens and the new earth ultimately have not come, although we are citizens of them already, and we can experience something of the joy of salvation <laughs> and so forth that those who have gone before us have experienced. It says in Revelation 21, I'll just read verses 1 through 4. John is saying in the vision, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And this is all after Christ has come. Also, there's no more sea. Then I, John, saw the whole holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's ultimately what Abraham was looking for. That. And that's what those of us who are children of Abraham by faith in Christ, that's what we're looking for. Same heavenly city, the same new heavens and new earth, ultimately. Although we know far more about it than, than Abraham did. Uh, he apparently knew more than we knew that he knew, according to the author of Hebrews. How much more, we don't know. So the promise to Abraham is ultimately fulfilled after our Lord Jesus returns, even though we have, as I've said, begun to experience a foretaste of this fulfillment already. And so the, the suggestion here is that the promise made to Abraham, the revelation given to him, and God's calling him out and beginning a new, a new phase of redemptive history where the promised seed was going to come through the line of Abraham and ultimately result in Christ, that that might be the beginning of an age that ends when Jesus comes back. It's a possible candidate for when this age might have begun, I'm suggesting. Um, another candidate I would suggest, again, I had to pare it down to just a couple because uh, there are several. And, and actually, they tend to line up the biblical covenants, the key biblical covenants that God makes with people, interestingly enough, which are also key pivotal events in redemptive history as you look through the Old Testament. So some people might be tempted to see an age for every one of those covenantal periods. And dispensationalists like to call those dispensations and define them differently and, because they're wrong. But the, the, the I couldn't, I'm sorry, but couldn't help that. But, um, but, but you can see why they might do that, right? 
especially when we get later and we see that there are ages spoken of in the past. We just have to be careful when we do that, as I said, not to, not to let our conjecture become what people must believe, right? We're talking about possibilities based on an overview of Scripture. Anyway, the second, the second example, I suppose one could go all the way back to Adam and see the current age as having begun with his fall and the subsequent promise of salvation um, that was made to him. And what is called the Proto-Evangelion or the Proto-Gospel, the, really the first uh, statement about salvation that would come through the seed of the woman, which was ultimately, of course, uh, Christ. Of course, this might not be a bad option because if we're living in the last days of this age and they've been this long, then we would expect this age to have been a pretty long age. And so going back to Abraham might, or Adam rather, might be, might be something we might think of as a possibility just for that reason, I suppose. But uh, this, this promise, this initial promise of, of victory over the serpent comes in Genesis 3. And of course, in the overall context of Scripture, this victory over the serpent is also victory over sin, it's victory over death, right, that comes through Jesus Christ. Genesis 3, 14 and 15, after the fall, and God's pronouncing the curse on the man and the woman and the serpent, he says this to the serpent, Genesis 3, 14, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, that is hatred, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, he's going to attack, he's going to try to destroy the seed of the woman, but he's going to lose. That's what that's saying, <laughs> right? Um, now, this promise of the seed who was to come was later reiterated to Abraham. It was it was the same language that was used in the promise to Abraham include this idea of a seed. In Genesis 12, 7, for example, going back to the passage we were in before, we're told that the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. Now the word descendants there, that plural word, it's actually a singular word, zerah in the, in the Hebrew, Sperma in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text, is also, is also uh, singular there. Um, so it could be said, and to your seed I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. Now, we've already seen that Abraham looked to what we know as the new heavens and the new earth ultimately. But we need to also notice that this Hebrew word for seed here, although the King James has it as descendants, can have a singular or a plural meaning. Can have a singular or plural meaning, zerah. Just like our English word seed can refer, be singular or plural when it's referring to like someone's descendants, right? If we're referring to the descendants of Abraham and we say the seed of Abraham, we're using a noun that could be singular or it could be plural in that sense, right? We mean as descendants, which is, if that's what it's referring to in, in Genesis 12, 7, the New King James is not wrong to say descendants, plural, because it can have that meaning. The English word can, just like the Hebrew word zero. Of course, in English, we can also add an S on the end and make it plural when we're talking about seeds you might sow in a garden, for example. Um, so it's important to remember that it can have this dual sort of significance depending on the context. It's a sort of a collective noun, right, then, as it's used to refer to one's, to one's descendants. And that's important because the Apostle Paul picks up on that grammatical point and says it's really theologically important that the word zera there Ha that has this dual meaning, it's important that God used it that way. Here's what he says in, in Galatians 3.16 about this promise. 
And, and it recalls the promise made to Adam, through whom the seed would ultimately come, right? Who would bruise the head of the serpent, who would beat the serpent, and in so doing, destroy sin and death, and so forth. Um, in Galatians 3.16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Now, there's, there are these texts that speak of this promise made to Abraham that he would be a blessing, and, and uh, to the seed of Abraham, those pr same promises would apply. And Paul says it's very important that he use the word there that can have this singular meaning, because he says, ultimately, the seed he had in mind is Christ. That's what Paul's saying. But Paul's assuming there, right, that that word is being used because it's the same Hebrew word that was used in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. It's the same word. Paul's saying we had to see a connection there. The ultimate reference of that is to Christ who came in obviously as a fulfillment, not just as a promise made to Abraham then, but to Adam and Eve. So there's this connection there, right? There's this promise made to Adam, and there's sort of an allusion to it in the promise made to Abraham that Paul brings out very clearly when he speaks of believers today being recipients of this promise through Christ. We're all sons of Abraham that way too. So there's this paradigm that we're seeing between somehow Christ and Adam and the promise that was made to him. He would come as the seed of the woman, ultimately from Adam, in fulfillment of this promise. But Paul also taught that our Lord Jesus was the second or the last Adam. For example, he drew an analogy clearly between Adam and Jesus in his epistle to the Corinthians. I'll begin in, uh, earlier in the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, where Paul says in a passage dealing with the future resurrection, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all should be made alive. So he's drawing a direct analogy between Adam, who brought death, and Christ, who is the seed who was to come of Adam, who brings life. Later in the context, Paul picked up this theme again when he spoke of the resurrection more specifically. Uh, he, beginning in verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And so it is written. The first Adam became a living being. The last Adam, Paul says, became a life-giving spirit. Here clearly referring to Christ. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So Jesus is the last Adam, or the second Adam, Paul is telling us. So that would seem to mean that just like there was a promise and fulfillment with this Abraham there that sort of bookended what might be an age, we see here a bookending as well here of these two things, the first Adam and the second Adam. And of course, we're only in the last days of this age, so all the blessings of the second Adam haven't come. It comes with the resurrection, Paul says, and, then, and the age to come. And we're just having a foretaste. We live in resurrection power now. We have resurrection life now as Christians. We have spiritual everlasting life. We don't yet receive all the blessings yet until the resurrection. And so that would bookend this age and the age to come then. The death that came through Adam, the life ultimately that comes through Christ in its fullest experience in the future. So that's, that's this suggestion for, we're looking for pivotal events, we're looking for promise fulfillment paradigms, 
there are others we could suggest. Uh, Noah and the flood, that seems to be a key event that turned things around. It might have begun a new age, don't you think? <laughs> There's a whole new earth, really, after that. Um, uh, perhaps Moses and the Exodus and the giving of the law is a candidate for when, when this age might have begun. Um, that's a key redemptive event, a pivotal one in the history of redemption. Um, maybe you can think of other possibilities. I can't think of any better than maybe those four, but, um, but I've limited our discussion to these two again for the sake of time. And I've only done it because I wanted to, to show how, if we were going to try to answer this question, how, how might we try to answer it? First, we're going to look for explicit text. I don't, I don't know of one that says when this age began. Then I'm going to look for a passage that necessarily implies that it must have begun at a certain time. I haven't given you any necessary inferences here. Maybe some good inferences, some possible inferences, but no necessary inferences, right? So we don't have that. Well, then what do we have? Well, we can think about possibilities and then stop. And then stop right there and say there are only possibilities. But why go through the process? Well, first of all, because it's fun to study the Word of God. Uh, it's, it's fun to think about the history of redemption and how it unfolds and how God works throughout history. And and all these promised fulfillment connections that we see as the history of redemption unfolds, culminating in Christ, it's always good to go back and review what the scriptures explicitly tell us about all of that. It makes all these connections I've made explicitly, right? I'm not making those up. Those aren't conjecture. It's whether or not any one of them constitute the beginning of this age that's the conjecture. So all we can do is hazard a guess, but it would still just be that at the end of the day. It'd be a guess. Um, the, the scripture does seem to indicate clearly, however, that there's more than just this age and the age to come. There's more than just these two ages. In fact, there are a number of passages in which the plural is used to indicate the possibility of one, more than one age, either in the past or in the future. That the age to come might not be the only age to come, for example. Can't imagine that, can you? Um, first, uh, there are several passages that seem to indicate the possibility of one more than one age, rather, in the past. Uh, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, it says this. Now, all these things happen to them, what happened to the Old Testament saints, as examples, and they were written down for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The ends of the ages have come upon us. Now, that seems to imply that there were more, there were many ages, at least two ages, before Christ came, right? The ends of the ages. And it's interesting that they use the word ends there, the plural of telos, which could mean the, the end of something, time-wise, but... It could also mean the ultimate purpose of something being achieved. The end is in the ultimate purpose. Um, so it could be that what Paul is saying here is that as we anticipate the end of this age, we apparently also anticipate the ends of all the previous ages in the sense that um, we anticipate the fulfillment of what has been promised and looked for throughout these ages. Perhaps he means it that way. I would suggest. Now, if that's correct, then it would seem my previously preferred conjecture that this age began with the fall of Adam and the subsequent promise of salvation would be wrong. Because if Paul is assuming that there are multiple ages, at least two, right, leading up to Christ's coming, and that we're in these last days of this age, those upon whom the ends of the ages have come, and the ends of the ages imply something of the fulfillment of what those ages were about, then there must be more than one previous age of promise fulfillment, or promise that we find fulfillment now in. 
So somebody could say, well, given that, well, maybe there was Abraham, maybe there's Moses, maybe there was Noah, maybe there's Adam, and all those were different ages, and the ends of those ages of now, we're living now. The ends of the ages have come upon us. That is the ultimate purpose, the ultimate fulfillment has begun now with Christ coming in the last days of this age. I could see why somebody would think that. Something along those lines. But again, though, it doesn't say what these ages are. So trying to pinpoint them, although we're trying to do it in what we think is a biblical way by looking for these key promise fulfillment paradigms and these pivotal events in redemptive history, maybe key covenants along the way, although we're trying to do that, we can't, be, we can't go and say, well, I can tell you what each one of those ages is. No, all I can do is tell you, well, there were these covenants, there were these promises, they all got fulfilled, and somehow Paul's referring to that. He must be. But not in a way that allows us to clearly line them all up the way we like to do charts and so forth. Um, he goes, for example, in Colossians 1.26, he says, The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations has been revealed to the saints. That might just be figurative, or it might be more than one age in the past. Uh, Hebrews 9.26 says, He would then have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages. Now there's one end there, the end of the ages. And it's a different word. It's not tell us this time. It's a form of it. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself at the end of the ages. At any rate, there appears to have been at least one more age prior to this age. Right? Um, although I see no way, again, of knowing with any certainty how many there were or exactly or when it any of them began and ended. They were all coming to this to fruition with the, the coming of Christ. As for the possibility of more than one age in the future, there's at least one passage, I think, that seems to clearly indicate that this is the case. Now, there are other passages that would speak of ages, but they seem to be speaking from the standpoint of eternity and so forth. So I won't go there. I'll just stick with this one. In Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, Paul writes, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. Remember, our citizenship is already in heaven. Because we're, we're united to Christ, we're connected to him. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ages to come. Now we've looked at this age and the age to come. We've seen a number of passages which speak of an age to come or the age to come. The, here Paul says ages to come. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know how to take that. They all got to start with the age that's coming next, I guess, the age to come. But uh, apparently God's got a lot in store for us in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, um, at any rate, there certainly seem to be more than just two ages referred to in Scripture. But as I understand Scripture thus far, we only have explicit information about this age and the age to come. And what we know about this age is that we're in the last days of this age and then it's going to end when Christ returns. And that that's when the age to come will begin. And we know something about the age to come and what that will entail, right? Life with Jesus forever. Um, so why have I spent so much time looking throughout Scripture and speculating about this issue when this age began or about how many ages there might be only to say in the end, I really don't know. Well, there's a few reasons I've taken you on this journey with me. It's my journey of trying to figure this out. And yeah, you're only getting a little of that journey here. But first of all, I think it's always a valuable thing to search through Scripture and begin to get a larger grasp on the flow of redemptive history. That's what this really was a lesson in today. Looking, looking at 
at the flow of redemptive history, wondering how God worked. It gives us a deeper appreciation of his sovereign and gracious plan when we do this. Um, it also enables us to better interpret Scripture in the future since we have a better grasp on the larger context of any passage that we read and, and where, it, where it fits into God's plan. So that's, if you, if you want to be a good interpreter of the Bible, you have to get a handle on this, on the flow of redemptive history. And, and progress, progressive revelation, how God progressively reveals more and more. Uh, secondly, I wanted to demonstrate that speculating isn't necessarily bad uh, so long as it remains within the bounds of Scripture and so long, as I said earlier, we're careful to distinguish between what Scripture says and our own surmising. We, we should never put a thus saith the Lord on our own conjecture, however scripturally based we may think that, scripture, or that uh, conjecture is, right? And we should never be dogmatic about conjectures like this. I mean, I virtually began by saying, take it with a grain of salt, right? Not any of the scripture texts and the clear associations the scriptures make, but my suppositions about what might or might not be the beginning of this age. Yeah. Take it or leave it, right? I'm not the authority the Bible is. And I don't know anyway. And I've said so. But I, but I did want to go through this exercise, as I said. Um, we, we, we must accept without reservation those things clearly taught in Scripture. But we shouldn't do that with opinions and conjectures. And I would say look out for teachers like that who, who offer you conjecture and make it sound as that is what the Bible says and doesn't clearly distinguish between them. If I got up here today and, and say, pick the Abraham option and said, this is when this age began, and you better believe it. Well, let me tell you, if I'd done that, George and Brent and Ben would be pulling me aside for some discipline. I guarantee you, how dare you, how dare you elevate your opinion to the authority of Scripture, and they would have rebuked me, and rightly so. But I tell you, there are pastors all over this land that do that every single Sunday. They put a thus saith the Lord, even though they don't use those words, they mix in their own conjecture with what Scripture says as though it's the same thing. And they do it constantly. I once wrote an article criticizing Andy Stanley for this. He's terrible at doing this. He constantly assumes that what he says is every bit as important and what he thinks is every bit as important as what the scripture says in his teaching. Watch out for guys like that. They're wolves. Watch out. This leads me to my first, uh, or third rather, <laughs> uh, and final observation. I hope that I've been able to show that we always need to be willing to admit what we don't know. We don't have to have an answer for everything. We need to humbly admit that there are still some mysteries that God has not revealed to us. He's hinted at other ages in the past and maybe in the future, and he's told us nothing clear about them. He's told us we're in the last days of this age pretty clearly. But he hasn't told us anything about when this age began, really. Although he's given us lots of information about key pivotal events and prophecies and revelations and covenants in the past. Right? He hasn't told us any of those amount to the beginning of this age. He's, he's left that a mystery. Apparently because he didn't think we needed to know it. I don't think he minds us wondering, as I've wondered together with you here today, what he minds is if we take our imaginations and our conjectures, as I said, and raise them to the level of his word. That is a horrible sin. 
So we need, we need to have the humility to recognize that we don't have all the answers and we never will. Here's the thing. God's always going to be infinite. And even in heaven, we're still going to be finite. And there's going to be a lot we're never going to know about God. We, lean, we need to learn now to not mind that. Because we're not going to mind it in heaven. At all. I think we're going to maybe forever be learning. But that's conjecture too. We need to humbly admit what we don't know. We need to humbly admit that there are mysteries that we can't answer. And you can be sure that a teacher that can't distinguish between the two is somebody you need to run away from. Fast. Because if he's going to do it on one issue, he'll do it on another. You don't want that. So that's why. Those are the reasons I thought it would be valuable to do something like this, even though I... I don't do this kind of thing when I teach, generally, because I don't teach conjecture. <laughs> I'm comforted by the fact that I've taught a lot of clear things from Scripture, however, and hopefully brought us up to this point at which we can all see clearly. We just don't know. I've, I've, hope, I've helped you get there with me so that you can sit back and say, I don't have to ask, ask this question anymore. There's no answer. And move on with my life. And... When you have some chart that you find on the internet that has it all spelled out, you know what to do with it. If you, if you bother to download it and print it out, put it right in the circular file, because that's where it belongs. Let's pray. Holy Father, um, I hope and pray that I've been able, through this, what I've done this morning, to serve as sort of an example of um, how a Christian might wonder about things and look for answers and because we love your word and we want to know more and we want to understand as much as we can, but also humbly admitting there's just lots of limits to what we can know and it's limited by what you've clearly revealed to us. Lord, help us not to be among those who are, who are unsatisfied with what you've revealed, who are discontented with what you've revealed, have revealed. And then they claim to be contented with your word and to think it's sufficient, but they go and do all kinds of conjecture that they make equivalent to your word and in the process demonstrate they don't think your word is sufficient at all. They can do better. Oh Lord, help us to run from that kind of pride. If it's in our hearts, help us to repent of it immediately. Fall on our knees before you and say, I don't know. And I'm okay with not knowing what you don't think I need to know, Lord. Give us such humble hearts, I pray. Help us to cling to your word, to what you say as an ultimate authority, and then what we think or imagine or some human opinion. I pray all these things for, for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I thank you once again for your kind attention.